the Soccer ESQ podcast. My name is Mickey Turner. You can find me online on Twitter at TurnerESQ. I also write for SoccerESQ.com, and I'm also a contributor with The Athletic and Sounder at Heart. The Women's World Cup is firmly in the rearview mirror, and the NWSL is now taking center stage, trying to capitalize on the momentum from the tournament. A number of teams have posted impressive attendance numbers, and they have a new sponsorship deal with Budweiser, but there's still a lot to be done. To discuss the next steps for the league, I called up Jonathan Tannenwald, writer for the Philly Inquirer, who spent several weeks at the Women's World Cup in France. We discussed his experience at the tournament, the successes and setbacks there, and what the NWSL is doing to use the boost from the tournament to make inroads with soccer consumers stateside. We also delve a little into the team specifically and the challenges they're facing in their respective markets. Finally, we chat about the role U.S. Soccer, MLS, and Soccer United Marketing will play in helping the league grow. Hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, joining me now is the goalkeeper, Jonathan Tannenwall, from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, does pretty much everything uh, soccer-related over there. Uh, is there anything you're not doing over there these days? Uh, getting enough sleep, is that an answer? <laughs> that is certainly one answer, uh, considering where you just uh, came back from. And that's a good place to start. I just wanted to get a brief you know, uh, you know your brief thoughts on your your trip over to the World uh, World Cup Women's World Cup in France. Uh, you weren't over there the whole time, but you caught a pretty decent percentage of the tournament, right? I was there for half of it. I was there for the middle two weeks. I missed the first week, and I did not go to the semifinals or the final. Uh, I was based in Paris the whole time. Was able to also get to Le Havre, Rame, Grenoble. Montpellier, and on a little side trip to Avignon, a city that is a very special place in my heart for a long time, and uh, it was really fun, and it's a country that I love, uh, I speak the language, which helps, certainly, Yeah. Um, culturally, I have that connection there, I think those of your listeners who follow me on Twitter know that, um, but it, it it was a great time. There were there were definitely some structural flaws, unfortunately, with the organization and the logistics. And if you're that kind of person, interests you. And if not, well, then you just sat and home and watched it on TV and enjoyed yourself. But um, you know, some of the stories got over here about how at the ground level in the stadiums they weren't all necessarily ready for the numbers of people who came over. Who wanted to, you know, take the tram or the bus or a taxi or whatnot back to their hotel at the end of the night? Uh, for the U.S. games in Rheim and La Havre, which are each about, you know, an hour and a half, two hours from Paris, there were no late trains back to Paris after the games. That didn't help. Some of the Ooh. smaller towns don't have a ton of hotels, you know, and if you're lucky, you booked one, you got it. But it's, you know, the. I love the country, and there's a lot of great people over there, and they really have come on to enjoy women's soccer there. And as folks saw, um, you know, the French public really got behind their team, and in some of the places, they got behind this World Cup. But you did get the sense every once in a while that the French Federation was very interested in reaping the benefits of hosting this World Cup, but maybe not doing all the work. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, what I wanted to to focus on a little bit as far as as far as the World Cup. It's kind of a little bit of the behind-the-scenes stuff because, you know, uh, the pictures uh, coming back from the U.S., uh, obviously most of it was was very good. Uh, some decent crowds for most of the games, although not for all of the games. 
Um, and the locals, as you said, seem to get behind the tournament, primarily, obviously, France, uh, which is hardly a surprise. Um, did you, uh, first of all, did you go to the uh, World Cup, Women's World Cup in, uh, in Canada in 2015? Yeah, Canada, I did start to finish. Okay, so uh, just briefly, what, what would you say were some of the contrasts there, uh, both pro and con? Obviously, for U.S.-based people, the Can Canadian uh, location made it much easier to get to games. Uh, the times were better. Uh, but uh, just generally speaking, uh, was it a step forward or a step back as far as the infrastructure was concerned? Steps forward and one and a quarter back. <laughs> well, here's look. Here's the thing. The stadiums in France are great, and if you're used to operating in European stadiums, which are generally smaller in scale and the setups are a little different, and so on. If you know your way around a little bit, it makes sense well enough. You know, it's not that hard. If you're used to working in American stadiums, as I know, Mickey, you have done some, uh, you do come to realize that in American stadiums, a whole lot of things are given to us. And it's not just that it's not the case in France, it's not the case in the rest of the world, bar Canada, you know, in the hockey and soccer venues and the baseball there. So we're the exception, not the rule. And I get that. I'm used to it. It's part of the fun of the experience is, is, is getting that and, you know, the other good part of it is a lot of the stadiums, not all of them, but a lot of them, were near enough to city centers. You could take the tram or walk and have a little time. You know, I'll give you an example. I went to Italy, China, and Montpellier. Um, I got there at, I don't know, 12 o'clock or so, 11.30. A little short jaunt over to my hotel, dropped my bags off into the main square in town to sit down for a while, have a really good lunch walk around a couple blocks, see the buildings, take a tram across the town to the, you know, Montpellier, the club, the French club, to their store, which unfortunately closed half an hour before I got there because it was <laughs> the one day of the year that they do their inventory. Uh, I told that story a couple times. And I ended up buying some stuff online. Um, take the tram across town, go to the stadium, and, and you know, that's that. It was fun. Great. Lovely. And the best thing, the best things about France, uh, and and you, I know, are a connoisseur of the better things in life, starting with the cigars and such. Yes, of course. Uh, you, you you cannot eat a bad meal in France. You, you could try really hard if you wanted, to. <laughs> but man, I'm telling you, you sit there, get a couple of friends together. You know, the the fixed price menus and whatnot are 25 euros or so. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. An appetizer and an entree and a, a dessert and the, the glasses of wine are, if you, you go cheap, you can go expensive, obviously, you want to, but you can get down to four or five euros for a glass of wine, sit there and watch the world go by, and that's what it's all about. That sounds like a, uh, a fantastic uh, way to spend uh, a few months, uh, a few weeks uh, this summer, yeah. or a few months for that matter. I'll say, I'll say one other thing, which is, a, and, and people know this from afar, I'm sure, the trains in France are terrific. Oh, yes. The TGV course. gets you everywhere, you, just about everywhere you want to go. Not perfect. You know, some of the stadiums that are out of town, that's a city level thing. But, you know, get on a train in Paris in the morning, and two and a half hours later, you're in the south of France. And it's pretty good. And uh, 
We've invented a lot of things in this country. We have not yet invented the double-decker TGV that goes 300 kilometers an hour Ugh. across the country. Fingers crossed someday. Uh, it'll not be here before we uh, before we leave this earth, unfortunately. No, probably not, unfortunately. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's move a little bit to the to the business uh, side of things uh, from the World Cup as well. Uh, you know, ratings were very good. Uh, ticket sales were very good. Uh, what was the sense you got uh, of how this event, you know, was pulled off essentially um, from you know? And we talked a little bit about infrastructure, but on the business side, do you think it, it accomplished what it wanted to domestically? I think it accomplished what it wanted to domestically. That doesn't mean it's the right answer. I mean, look, you couldn't, you, you, you could, some of the cities got really into it. Grenoble, for example, a lot of the shops had displays up in the windows. I was there for Jamaica, Jamaica, Australia, which was a really fun game. And the tram stops all had on the, you know, the electronic displays. Hey, Jamaica, Australia tonight at nine o'clock over at the stadium. Let's all go support the teams. Paris, you would think they would have put signs up all over the subway in town saying, hey, here's what's going on. And they didn't. They had one little part of town where they had the fan zone where there was some stuff, and it was over by the stadium, and that was it. You'd think that they'd want to do more than that. Um, and then you realize that they would have actually had probably spent some money to do that. Yes. That's not the way we do things. Here's the other thing. You couldn't buy head nor tail of merchandise for the most part. Um, That's just crazy. Well, look, the French uh, media took note of this. And we know this in America, and we know it especially when we go abroad. Um, lazy American tourists, though we may sometimes be, we buy every souvenir in the building. That is absolutely true. And uh, the French admitted, to their credit, and the France said, not the organizers, but the French media noted, hey, Maybe this is a good idea to sell some more merchandise every once in a while. And I, you know, it ties, in fact, into something that happened. Um, I know this was not quite on the agenda, but it came to mind. You know, this past Sunday, uh, there was a gaggle of uh, French soccer teams down in Washington, D.C., playing a little exhibition tournament to try to drum up some interest in the French League, which they didn't really do. Um... One, because not all that many people in the U.S. follow French soccer. We know. <laughs> of course. But, all, but also, um, something that I noticed, and I mentioned this to some of the PR folks and the, and the media that had come over in conversations. You, you go down to the club shop at Audi Field, you want to buy, I don't know, a scarf or jersey or something. Not one of the clubs had a thing there. And, and I said, look, you know, the, look, the French soccer has never been with the exception of Paris Saint-Germain and a little bit Lyon, has never really been as corporatized as it has been in England and Germany and Spain. But, uh, you know, say what you will about the cliches about the French and the Americans. I said, hey, um, you know, if you want to get some attention among the Americans, you might want to try to sell a couple jerseys and so on. And they all agree. So they know they came up there. They know they're coming up short there. Do you think that was just uh, that was just down to lack of wanting to to front the money to make it on the back end? Is it as simple as that? Uh, I mean, that's the excuse we get from Adidas and MLS all the time, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, look, no, I'm 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 willing to excuse that and say they just didn't think about it. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, so the 
the World Cup obviously has, has, has long since come to an end. We've, we've had the, the parades. We're going to see a victory tour. But obviously, domestically, uh, you know, here in the States, uh, all the talk, you know, and this, this to be fair, this happens after every World Cup uh, that United States participates in, men and women. There's a focus on the domestic league. And you wrote a very long, very detailed story, uh, which was fantastic. Kind of an overview on the NWSL. Uh, where they've uh, been and and where they're going, and what you know, there's a ton of stuff I want to talk to you about, but uh, I wanted to to pick your brain about a tweet from Grant Wall in the aftermath of the World Cup. I know that's obviously it may have been part of your story, but uh, raising some concerns about the the stability of the league, uh, you know, past this year. Uh, I wanted to know what you made of uh, Grant's tweet, which I assume you read in. Um, any response from the NWSL to those concerns? Yeah, I made a good bit of it, um, as did a few of us, uh, because the the logistics behind it uh, is that the U.S. Soccer Federation has a management agreement to administer the NWSL. Yeah, which ends this that year. Runs out after this year, and so that's the question: is what happens after that? And that's why there are some concerns on the part of agents of players who are worried about what might happen and why there was this notion that uh, there might not be an NWSL next year, which seemed a little far-fetched to me and I think probably seemed a little far-fetched to everybody. And there's, there's some virtue in sounding the alarm to be sure yeah, because it gets folks attention and makes them wake up, which is good. Um, I talked to somebody who, your listeners in Seattle know. Can I mention his name on the program without getting in trouble? I, I think you probably can. Okay, his name is Merritt Paulson. You can bleep <laughs> that out if you need to. Yes. Um, he, he, too, look, I know a lot of people in Seattle don't like him. There's a lot of people all over the country who don't like him. And I will grant, uh, he talks to me fairly often, which I appreciate, especially in matters concerning the NWSL, about which he cares very deeply. Um, but I, I have a hunch that a whole lot of people around uh, American and even Canadian soccer would much like to have an owner like him running their team. Um, so I asked him what he made of, of this business, um, you know, the rumors and the conversation and the franchise, the, franchise, the management agreement ending at the end of this year. And his response was as follows, quote, I expect our league to not only be in existence, but be better positioned next year. Whether or not U.S. soccer is the manager of the league, it's critical to our success that they've continued to be a financial partner and investor. I don't see the league continuing to stabilize and grow if that's not the case. Yeah, and so and to, to piggyback on that, and then I'll let you uh, you know follow up. You know, I've I've spoken with U.S. Soccer you know at length about about this uh, because obviously that's you know kind of my uh, my thing is you know yes. reading about the legal uh, and the business side, and their their you know their their commentary or their their thought is that there's no way that they're not going to be involved with the NWSL after this year, whether or not a management agreement is in place, right. and that's that kind of goes to what. Merritt said, um, and there's a number of reasons for that. Some of them are, I'm sure, PR. Uh, 
it would look terrible if they were to pull out of the NWSL, especially with uh, lawsuits going on uh, all over the place. And some of yeah, it is Olympics coming up. And yes, so yes, exactly. So and then there's obviously the 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 issue. Of, you know, they they want women's soccer to succeed. So there's I'm sure there's an element of self preservation and uh, you know just wanting to benefit uh, development of soccer in the United States. But I I just don't see them leaving. Uh, whether or not they, their relationship with the NWSL changes. What is your I thought on that? I ask you one, one question about that because you, you, I, have, I have my sources in and around the realm, but there are a few that don't like talking to me. <laughs> uh, how polite should I be in asking this question? You tell me how polite I should be. Uh, no, I, I would say uh, uh, okay. you can be as direct as you, as you like. Okay. Have you spoken to the chief commercial officer of the U.S. Soccer Federation and gotten his opinion? No, I have not. No, I have okay. not. Okay. I have not either. I don't know that anybody has. Um, I sure would like to know as would a bunch of other people as to whether he's going to be the next CEO. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, the, name, the gentleman's name, for those who don't know, is Jay Berhalter. Last name may sound familiar. <laughs> it should. Um, Jay has been employed by U.S. Soccer for far longer than Greg has been, right? Uh, in a far more overreaching manner. Uh, overreaching being an interesting word because he is often accused of overreaching. Yes. Um, sorry, but he that is it. That, for whoever U.S. soccer might complain to me, that is a point of fact. He has been accused of overreaching. Yeah, by multiple people in multiple <laughs> yes. different ways. So, uh, and, and within the realm of women's soccer, I would say that accusation has been leveled a fair amount. Um. And I would ask folks to think of it this way, and I will say, and I'm only telling you what I've heard from things. Look, obviously I have my own opinions that has happened. But you do hear this from a lot of people in the women's soccer realm, and obviously quite a few in the men's realm, but it is a particular consequence in the women's realm when we are speaking on the subject, as we often do, of how much money, how much revenue women's soccer can generate in this country especially that of it in which the U.S. Soccer Federation has its tentacles. And in that regard, we know they have their tentacles in quite a few places. So, um, when your title at the U.S. Soccer Federation is the chief commercial officer, and when you are in charge of negotiating sponsorship deals for the national teams with the help of Soccer United Marketing, as we know. Yep, and we'll talk about and that. When and when, in particular, the U.S. Soccer Federation has not only a vested interest, but a financial interest and a, a seat or two at the table, if not more, in the running of the Women's League, and you are, in, and also, obviously, in the commercial marketing of the women's national team, and you are accused of undermarketing the women's national team to their potential and not doing what you could do to help get commercial sponsorships to the Women's League, well... Then what? Yeah, it, it, it's it's an absolute mess. And you know, you mentioned uh, Soccer United Marketing, and so that's probably a good place to, to move. Leave that out too if you want. To. Yes, yes. Um, you your story referenced uh, Soccer United Marketing coming in and doing some pro bono work uh, to sec help secure sponsorships. Was that to the, the Budweiser deal specifically? Uh, they, yes, they helped. They helped broker the Budweiser deal. Um, you know, pro bono was an interesting turn of phrase, obviously, and I, I sought some clarification on that. Got it. They did not receive a commission or a fee for their work, and I sort of preemptively headed off what I knew the response would be. 
pass. Well, it's just, which is, if it's all U.S. soccer, then what difference does it make? And the answer that I gave was what I was told by Amanda Duffy and what I also know to be true from sources at MLS and some, which is that they really did want to do something to help here. Yeah. Um, and I know plenty of people at MLS who care very much, genuinely, about the women's game. People who have worked in the women's game, people who have worked for teams, perhaps, or uh, the league, or any number of other um, concerns that are, are connected here. And they genuinely want this thing to succeed, and not just because it, it is popular, but because they actually care about women's soccer. And so this was a, a bit of tangible proof of that. Um, what it leads to, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's right. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I've seen people say, you know, we've all seen plenty of people say, wouldn't it be great if some was doing for the NWSL, what they do for MLS, which is to say, taking the money out of the Mexican national team and putting it in MLS pockets. Um, it's a great <laughs> yeah. little business if you can run it. Um, sorry. But we know that's kind of true, it and is. we need only look at the League's Cup, for example. That is 100% um, true. Yeah. And then look, there are people who say they want no part of this corrupt and filthy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in their women's game. So at some point, somebody's going to have to make a decision one way or the other. Yeah, and the, actually, that's, so that's a great uh, place to, to go next. And the women's, uh, the, the owners of the NWSL, uh, by and large, uh, at least initially, didn't have a whole lot of of a relationship with MLS uh, until really, I guess, uh, you know, Merritt came in, and then obviously Houston and Orlando uh, also have uh, relationships. And uh, Utah. And Utah now uh, coming, uh, they took over from uh, Kansas City when they uh, when they relocated or folded or however you want to characterize that. Uh, it, my understanding is that they have not wanted to have much uh, initially. Didn't want to have much of a relationship with with MLS as far as you know, MLS Team X having NWSL Team yes. Y playing. Do you, do you think that has changed uh, given the financial issues that have been going on, or do you think they still want to have an an independence, which also explains why they've been holding some at arm's length. Well, they held some at arm's length in part because of what A&E and, e, and e came along and offered, yeah. which turned out to not be all that it was uh, uh, hyped to be. Uh, do they still want to hold MLS at arm's length? No. And that holding them at arm's length sentiment goes back, by the way, to the original WUSA, not just the yeah. So It's been around for a long time. But we want to do it on our own sentiment. Fine. Okay. Good luck. Some of them succeeded. Some of them did not. And on the flip, you know, there are some MLS teams that want to get more involved, certainly, and we know this. They're poking around. Uh, two of them off the top of my head, three of them off the top of my head, have made mention of it along the way, which are LAFC, Atlanta yeah. United, and FC Cincinnati. Um, don't think I ever saw... Uh, in my earlier years, professional women's soccer thriving in the city of Cincinnati, Ohio, but here we are. Yeah. Uh, it might well. Um, but at the same time, I think there is a genuine desire to leave the door open to other groups and potential owners and so on 
Because what you, and, and there should be. Because what you don't want to do, oh, this is going to open up another can of worms, this isn't what we're doing all night on this show. Uh, what you don't want to do is close off the avenues for people to get involved in the game. Haven't we heard that before? Well, I mean, at different point- context, but we've said the same thing, and it's actually true. You want, you don't want to close off somebody who would make an investment in a professional women's team, such as, for example, the, the organization in Connecticut that is getting together with uh, Christine Lilly as the front person and Tom Meredith as the second front person. Um, you want to be able to have that still. And going forward, yeah, I think it's 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 given the situation, it would seem to me to be foolhardy for them to foreclose off any reasonable, uh, reputable investors who want to be involved in the women's game, knowing that at the on the front end, it's not likely to be a money making proposition. Um, you know, similar to MLS in some ways. Um, you know, in some ways they, there's their MLS, you know, they say they're still losing money. Um, that typically comes around when collective bargaining, uh, is, is on the table, but they're going to be losing money real fast at the end of this year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it makes all the sense in the world for them to have a closer partnership, understanding that, yeah, maybe that's not something they want, but it may be what they need. Um, I wanted to ask you also about, how the uh, NWSL generally and how uh, the teams uh, specifically have taken advantage of uh, the World Cup quote-unquote bump. Uh, you wrote about that in your story. Uh, you know, Chicago had a bit of an eye-popping number. Portland is a bit of an outlier, in, generally speaking, but they still uh, increase their averages. Uh, Sky Blue uh, as well. Uh you know, the, I think the NWSL got a little bit of criticism for not being ready to ramp up in the aftermath of the World Cup. So I'm curious uh, what your what your thoughts are on how they've done, as I said, generally and the team specifically in taking advantage of uh, the uh, World Cup. Yes, the league office was not ready. Some of the clubs were. Chicago Red Stars certainly were. I know quite a few people who work over there, and they really went out and pounded the pavement. And look... They did uh, goose the gate a bit. Uh, they admitted, in fact, that they goosed the gate a bit. They had some free and very cheap tickets that went out. But the goal was that these folks had not been showing up in the first place. Yeah. So get them once and get them to buy a ticket the second time. That's the idea. And I don't generally mind that do, doing that, you know, once a year or two. I, uh, you know, every once in a while. Shouldn't do it all the time, but I don't mind doing it every now and again. Um, Sky Blue, I suspect, a little bit of the same, although um, anybody who gets to go there is, is congratulations. Yes. Oh, yeah, so, I, sorry. It's incredible. I, incredible. Look, I, you know, I've written about this before. I've been there. I go there up there three or four times a year. And some people go more often if they live in central New Jersey, and some people go less often if they live in New York or Philadelphia. And, and they've said that they want to get out of there after this year. They've not been shy about it. Um, but the, the, the chain is as strong as the weakest link, right? Absolutely. And that's the weakest link. Do you think, uh, since we're talking about Sky Blue a little bit, obviously they, they are one of the most uh, notorious, uh, or the most notorious, uh, you know, 
team. They might be the most notorious sports team in the in the country, <sighs> given the uh, issues that they've had. Uh, you know, again, they 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 brought out five thousand people uh, to the game last night. Uh, they lost to the Spirit, I believe, uh, one nothing. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't sound like their current home is uh, a long term uh, viable venue. Um, although if they, you know, increase their average by, you know, to around 5,000, maybe it will be, uh, no, it does not meet yeah. professional league standards straight oh, yeah. up. And there's the other issue. Yeah. There's the other issue there. And that's, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the rain. So I'll get to them in a minute, um, uh, about their move. So, uh, you know, their owner, uh, the governor of New Jersey has taken a lot of criticism. They've, they've made some improvements in their local and in, in their infrastructure living situation. Uh, do you see, uh, you know, do you think they're they're staying put in the area going forward? Do you think there's any chance they can move, or do you think you know they've kind of sorted those issues out? Well, they've not sorted it out. They've admitted that. They're still trying to figure out whether they can get to. Uh, I'm not sure whether I I, I I wrote a story about this. I, I spoke to the general manager of the team on the subject and posited, I think, four potential venues. One of which is Talent Energy Stadium, which obviously I'd love, uh, but it would it would take the NWSL out of New York completely, which yeah. I'm not sure they quite want to do. Uh, one is Red Bull Arena, which the you know the, the fan base that they have that is based in northern New Jersey, that's where they want to go. But we all know how much it's going to cost to rent the place. You yeah. have six, seven thousand people rattling around in a twenty-five thousand seat stadium, and the Red Bulls can't even sell out. <laughs> uh, you know, heaven knows, heaven knows how many parts of that stadium would be under construction for Sky Blue games, right? Yes, yes, and the, the tarps, you know, again, I, the Red Bulls, uh, the, the, they're tarping it off at a at a rate that is 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 pretty alarming in and of itself. So um, they ceased construction when the U.S. women were there magically, yes, yeah, and they sold those seats, and their place was full. Yeah. I don't know if Mark Fish can. Uh, Listens to this show, I'm sure he probably has his head blew off. Sorry. <laughs> uh, he's a dear friend of mine. Yeah, um, yeah Mark's a good guy. Yours too. Um, you know, uh, so there's those two of the MLS stadiums within earshot. Uh, the Red Bulls USL team's facility at Montclair State is 5,000. It's turf, which is not great, but it's been renovated and upgraded a couple of times in recent years. And probably has all the amenities and a decent location in the right size. Um, the place that I would, biased, I realize on this, I think folks know this, but it would also make a lot of sense. Um, your listeners won't necessarily know the geography of Man uh, Manhattan. One of them, Glenn White, will. You know him pretty well, I think. Um, he's from New York originally. Uh, one, he, at the upper tip of Manhattan is where Columbia University's football stadium is. Ah, yes. It, it seats 17,000. It's turf. I suspect the gridiron lines are permanent. There's a track around it. But it's the right size. It's the right location. You're just over the river from Westchester County. Um, if you could work out a deal with them to spend a little money to call Atlanta United and figure out how to get the paint off the field and back, um, you'd have a really nice setting there for professional women's soccer. Park them there for a couple of years. And then... Uh, shoot a flare across the East River to New York City FC and say, hello, how's it going? Would you like to buy us? Yes, we think you would, uh, in fact, because we City Football Group has invested significantly in women's soccer uh, 
in Manchester in England and also down in Australia. Um, would you like to buy into the NWSL? You can keep the name, you can keep the colors. They work quite well for you. And would you like to use your women's soccer team, take them over to the city council in New York and say, hey, we're not just a bunch of old white men. Can we help get a stadium built now? And finish that. Yeah, well, that would actually be uh, to their benefit, I think, because uh, you know, given you know the the rumbling, you know, I wouldn't say I've heard anything from any anybody, but given the current state of the NYCFC stadium, uh, you know, progress is is less than nothing at the moment. Right. Uh, so that might be I, might be a way to get yeah, that I, moving. Yes, I think it would be. Um, I know some people who think it would be. They don't have any control over any of this, but um, it's. The idea, at least. I think it would work. But, yeah. yeah, and actually, so uh, speaking of uh, stadiums, uh, I wanted to finish up uh, talking a little bit uh, local t- uh, to me out here with the Rain FC, who also uh, are, had stadium issues. Uh, they were forced to move out of Memorial Stadium, which is located in Seattle, which is about as dilapidated as a stadium could have possibly be. Uh, yeah, most, I love it though. Yeah, <laughs> I like old stadiums. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, uh, U.S. Soccer did not like that stadium, nor did no, NWSL, uh, and told them that they had to move, and so they moved down to Tacoma. And uh, I'm actually, I'll be at practice tomorrow and at the game on Sunday, and they're uh, expecting their biggest crowd ever, uh, including Memorial, uh, of around seven thousand. And so, obviously, you don't get out here that much uh, to talk uh, uh, rain specifically. But I, I wanted—I was interested in your take on, uh, you know, kind of the national view of of the Reigns, you know, struggles off the field. They've been, you know, very successful on the field, uh, but off the field, you know, they had trouble getting a stadium, uh, having to move, uh, you know, uh, attendance, um, especially related to Portland down the road, who's, you know, you know, selling out uh, Providence Park uh, fairly frequently. Well, I think you'd better be served to ask the public up there that than me as to why they don't seem to care enough. Um, Because they probably know much better than I would. The issue that I have with Tacoma is moderate to minor, but I don't live there. You know. And they've done their best to do something about it, which I appreciate. But if I lived in the parts of Seattle that I'd like to live in if I lived out there, which I'd never be able to do because I'd never have the money to save my life, but um, I wouldn't have a car. Yeah. And at a certain point, that matters in that regard, you know? So, you know, the rain to their credit, they're doing buses and all whatnot. They're making the best effort that they can to get people down there. But it's just not quite the same. I think that's a good way to put it. Not quite the same. And I'm, you know, I'm a little jealous, obviously, of the whole setup in Seattle where you can just walk right across downtown and be there. Because I live in a city where you got to drive half an hour to the stadium. (laughs) But it's, it's not nothing. And you hope, as I'm sure everybody hopes, that at some point, in the future. Um, you know, now, especially if they have a little bit of investment from the Sounders, you hope that they figure out a way to 
play a game or two at CenturyLink, latch onto a doubleheader or something like that, and go have some fun. Yeah, and I think you know the disappointing thing uh, for Seattle-based Rain fans um, is it's not that they moved because uh, Bill Predmore, the uh, the principal owner, penned a very uh, you know convincing letter basically saying that there were not any viable options yeah. except for moving to Tacoma. In fact, you know they were cl- they were exploring moving out of Seattle or out of Washington entirely. Because the only stadium that would meet professional league standards and uh, you know provide a reasonable atmosphere aside from Cheney was CenturyLink Field, and that is obviously a seventy-two thousand seat stadium, where you you know I think most reasonable estimates even there probably put attendance at between twelve and fifteen thousand, and that is given the operating costs likely that was just not something that was going to work. Uh, and so, as I said, I think you know. I don't think anybody was upset because of the move. I think they were just upset that there wasn't a better option. I think everyone understood why the move had to happen. Well, there isn't a better option. Where would they have gone? You know, UW's soccer stadium is not sufficient, and they were not going to renovate it just for that. So it's a shame, but there's nowhere to go. Yeah, I think that's that's the bottom line. And, and again, that's that's why I don't think there was a firestorm about the move. Uh, and Tacoma has certainly has some benefits. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a decent sized city for sure. I've I've worked there. I've lived there. And it's it's definitely a city that's that's on the rise, uh, but it's it's obviously not Seattle, uh, and you know they are certainly proud of that. Uh, and there is a, st- a new stadium plan going up, uh, which will looks like it's going to be uh, it'll be before the Tacoma City Council for a five thousand plus seat stadium. And where is it going to be in Tacoma? It will be in the central district of Tacoma, right by Cheney Stadium, right adjacent to Cheney Stadium. So, uh, so not on the train line. Not no, which is uh, unfortunate. There are still some transit issues uh, regarding the location, but you know that's um, more of a problem for people in Seattle who want to get down there. Uh, not so much for the South Sounders uh, who uh, will be able to you know enjoy a new stadium. So there's a benefit there that that's going to happen. Um, and it looks like it's going to happen, and so that is good. But again, it means that they are unlikely to be in Seattle anytime in the near future because there's not going to be a stadium of suitable size that is going to be built for the rain. Yeah, and so that, on that somewhat uh, dour note, uh, I think that is a fantastic place to uh, to end things. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Jonathan for joining me. Uh, Quick, uh, if you would give everyone a plug about where to find your uh, work. Well, my Twitter handle is the goalkeeper. You may or may not want to follow me. I tweet a lot. <laughs> um, that's, uh, my written work is at inquirer.com slash soccer. Uh, it is a metered paywall. You might hit it. If you do, I would appreciate it if you would subscribe. Uh, and that's about that. Excellent, and uh, you should definitely subscribe, uh, or don't complain about the meter if you uh, the paywall meter if you if you hit it. Uh, as a uh, athletic writer, uh, 
you know, subscriptions uh, help pay the bills and help pay the writers. So uh, certainly if you're wanting and enjoying the content, uh, you should uh, support. So I uh, want to thank uh, Jonathan for joining me and uh, enjoy your weekend, hopefully off uh, uh, and relaxing um, and decompressing from all of your travels. Thank you, sir. Great to talk to you.